This morning we continue our series called Ancient Images, prophetic pictures that point to Jesus. And in this series, we're looking at some of the images, the pictures that we see in the Old Testament that point to Jesus in the New Testament. In the Bible, images and pictures are very, very important. It is through everyday images and pictures that God conveyed theological concepts and spiritual truths to his people. And the reason was because they would look around them and see these images and pictures and they would be reminded of these uh, spiritual truths or theological concepts. And so uh, pictures and images are incredibly important in Scripture. I cannot overemphasize just how important uh, pictures and images are. And they're important for three reasons. Uh, And the first is that uh, images and pictures evoke feelings and emotions within us. We look at pictures and we feel something. When we look at images or pictures, we don't just see something, we feel something. So, for example, uh, have a look at this picture. Ah, straight away, ah. What are some of the the, the emotions or feelings that you you experience when you look at this picture? Anyone? Just one or two. Joy. Joy. Mother instinct. instinct. Love. Love. Okay, just emotions, feelings, okay? But what about this picture? Compassion. Sadness. Starvation. Images evoke feelings and emotions. Uh, So that's one of the first reasons. The second reason is that images and pictures are easy to understand and easy to communicate. So this is the mighty uh, African elephant. I I could tell you all about the African elephant, uh, what it eats, where it roams, uh, how it is structured in, in, in the matriarchal society of, of elephants. I could, I could give you all the data, which you would probably have forgotten by the end of the sermon. But, but you, you look at the African elephant, and, and you know what it is. So, so who, who, who of you here have actually never seen an African elephant in the wild or in a zoo? Like, you've never seen an like an actual live African elephant. Anyone? Okay, a couple of people. All right. So now, those of you who have not actually seen an African elephant in the wild, tell me some of the characteristics. What what do they look like? Gray? Big? Trunk? You've never seen an African elephant, but you, you can convey what it looks like. Why? Because it's an image. It's a picture. You can do that. And so... Secondly, uh, images convey, uh, they're easy to remember and they're easy to convey. And then thirdly, 
Images help us associate other concepts with the concept that the image is portraying. So, uh, look at this image. Yeah! What are the other concepts that come to mind when you look at this image? Anyone? Losing team. Ah! I, re I rebuke that. Perseverance. Perseverance. Just so many other concepts that we can, we can suddenly convey because that's what images do. And so for these reasons, uh, Scripture uses images and pictures. They, the Scripture is very deliberate about images and pictures because they're important. And God uses them to convey spiritual truth. Now, some of the images that we see in, in, in Scripture, they, they're, they're clear. Uh, they're, 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 we know exactly what they mean. And we easily associate them with Jesus. So think of that very first Passover. The blood on the vertical and the horizontal lintel. The using of, of hyssop the uh, protection of the people uh, uh, under th that blood. Easy to, to transport that and see how Jesus fulfills that. But there are some images that we don't easily associate with Jesus. And the reason is because we're simply not 2,000-year-old uh, Arabic or Hebrew-speaking people. The images and the, uh, th that we don't fully understand were very easily understood by the people who lived at the time of Jesus. And this morning, we're looking at one of those images that we don't automatically associate and understand, and that's the image of living water. So I'm going to read from John chapter 4 in a moment. It's the uh, famous, well-known story of Jesus and the, the Samaritan woman. And uh, the disciples have gone into town, and Jesus goes to the well, and uh, there's this lone Samaritan woman, and Jesus asks her uh, for something to drink. And so we pick up from there. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with uh, Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can uh, you get this living water? Are, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of life, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Father, this morning as we just look at this ancient image of living water, won't you just help us to see more clearly just who Jesus is and what he came to do for us? 
Won't your spirit speak to our spirits this morning as we look at this incredible ancient image of living water? Amen. To the ancient Israelites, water was always something that was on their mind. Uh, and the reason was they didn't have a lot of it. And so their lives were structured around uh, water. The, 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 the woman's day was uh, structured around water. They would uh, get water in the morning and then get water in the evening. Uh, for the men, the yearly lives were structured around water with the, uh, the, the spring rains, uh, the seasons of planting and harvest. Water is something you think about when you don't have it. When you have water, it's not something you think about. And that is incredibly uh, true uh, generally for us here in Canada and specifically for us here in the Fraser Valley. We don't think about water because we have a lot of it. Here in Canada, we, Canada is the country in the world with the most number of fresh water lakes. Canada has 879,800 fresh water lakes. That's a lot of freshwater lakes. The country that comes in second uh, with the second most number of freshwater lakes is, is Russia, uh, where they have 200,000 freshwater lakes. So put that in perspective. Russia is 71% larger than Canada, and yet we have four times as many freshwater lakes. Here in the Fraser Valley, we also don't think a lot about water. We get the most rain at this end of the, the valley, about 1,500 milliliters uh, per year. Uh, just to the north of us is the, uh, the mighty Fraser River. And the Fraser River is no small river. Uh, the Fraser River, as it flows into, into the sea, it, it pumps in a single minute it pumps out 7.6 million cubic feet of water in a minute. That's 90 Olympic swimming pools a minute. That's one and a half Olympic swimming pools every second. That's a lot of water. But you don't think of water until you don't have it. Before our family immigrated yet to, to Canada... Uh, we lived in uh, the bottom of Africa, a city called Cape Town. It's an amazing city, uh, just a, a beautiful uh, place to live. It's the oldest city in, in, in southern Africa, uh, and uh, it's, for that reason, it's called the mother city, because all the other cities kind of flowed out of people leaving or moving out of Cape Town. South Africans, though, will tell you that uh, the reason Cape Town is called the mother city is because in Cape Town, it takes about nine months for anything to, to get done. It's a very slow pace of life. And so we lived in, in, in Cape Town. It, it is a beautiful city, but it's a big city. There are five and a half million people living in Cape Town. So it's a significant city. And as a result, there are a lot of people needing access to fresh water. There is a very large lake outside of Cape Town, 
uh, a dam that, that feeds the city. Uh, and the way the, the weather works in, in Cape Town is that uh, during winter it's not cold, but it is rainy. And Cape Townians will tell you that it only rains uh, twice in winter, uh, first for two months and then for three months. So it, it gets a lot of rain in winter, and then when the, when the hot African summers arrive, you have months and months and months of no rain. And so Cape Town gets all of its rain in winter. And then about 20, 2014, Cape Town started to experience a, an unexpected drought where there was no winter rain. And so for three years, there just wasn't any rain. As a result, the, uh, the dam level just went down and down and down until it got to a, a point where there was this great fear that we were going to run out of water in Cape Town, that, that there would be no water. And the dams went from 100% full to 4%. And every single day, Capetonians would organize their lives around water. And most uh, Capetonians will tell you that they, they have post-traumatic stress from this time. There just wasn't water. And so you were allowed one-minute showers, and so you would wet yourself, turn the shower off, soap, shower on, and that was it. And you would catch that water in a... Uh, in, in a bucket, and uh, that would be for the garden or for whatever else you, you needed water for. And so myself and Kim and, and uh, Kate, oldest, would have a, a decent shower. Danny, because she was just this big, she would get to, uh, to, to have her bath in the dirty gray water in the bucket. In fact, when we moved here to Chilliwack, it was the first time that Danny had ever had a bath in a bath. And so we arrived, and we were, we were ecstatic about all the water. We were running baths and letting them out, and running baths and letting them out, and we were, we were sitting in the bath, and we were just like, water everywhere. You see, you don't think about water until you don't have it. And for the ancient Israelites, water was something they thought about all the time because they didn't have it. So what is living water? The Old Testament uses the term living water a number of times. But what is it? What did it represent? And what did Jesus mean when he said he's the source of living water? For us to understand, we need to Understand how the ancient Israelites understood this concept of living water. For the ancient Israelites, the, this, this image of living water, it, it wasn't some vague, uh, sort of unclear image. It, it was something that they knew very well because it was a part of their culture, but also because it was an image they could, they could hear, they could see, they could touch, and they could taste. It was a very clear image for the Israelites. The ancient Israelites 
divided water into three categories. And the first category was the sea. And for the Jews, the sea was a place best left alone, a place of chaos and mayhem. You, you, didn't, you didn't go there. You, didn't, you just avoided the sea. The rest of water was divided into two further groups, living water and dead water. Living water and dead water. And there were two very important differences between living water and dead water. And the first difference was that living water was fresh water, clean water, good water. It, it was the water that you found from, that you got from the rain. It, it was water from springs. It was water from fountains or from rivers. There was living water. Dead water was the opposite. Dead water was the water that gathered in pools or, or mud pits. It, it was the opposite of living water, good, clean water. And the second difference, which was even more important, was this. Living water came from God. Rain, rivers, springs, fountains. Living water came from God. Dead water was water that was man-made. Wells, dams, or cisterns. And so that was the major difference. The one was from God, the other was from man. So what does living water represent? Four things. Firstly, living water represents the very presence of God himself. The idea of living water was this idea that when you had living water, God was there himself. Jesus alludes to this in his discussion with the woman at the well. He says, to, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, who it is, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What did I say one of the defining characteristics of living water was? Living water came from God. So when, 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 when Jesus says, if you knew you would ask and he would give you. He's indicating to the woman at the world that God is in your presence. Throughout scripture, we see this image of living water indicating the presence of God. And we see it right at the beginning of creation. Where we we're told about the creation of, of the world and the Garden of Eden. And we're told specifically that in the Garden of Eden, there is a river. Moses tells us that uh, now the Lord had planted a, a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. The Aramaic word for Eden, Aramaic was the, uh, the predominant language when Genesis was written, although it's written in Hebrew, but Aramaic was the predominant language and the precursor to Hebrew. And the Aramaic word for Eden literally is translated as a well-watered place. And so we have God walking with his creation in the garden. God is present with Adam and Eve. He's, he's there with them. And that's indicated by the fact that Eden is watered by a river. We also see this at the end of Scripture. The disciple John has this image of the new Jerusalem, heaven, 
the New Eden to sort of as an idea. And he describes uh, this new Jerusalem, this heaven, and he first talks about the presence of God. So disciple John says in the end of uh, Revelation, Revelation 21, he says, look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then moves on to say that God's, from the throne here, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And so we're told that God is present with his people. And then John goes on to explain what he sees, and he describes what he sees, and he talks about the walls and their height and their size, and he talks about the gate. And then he hones in at what is at the center of heaven. He says this, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we have this idea of water, living water, indicating the presence of God. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus uses the term living water, but also that we see water, living water, at the start of Jesus' ministry and at the end. Now, we don't grasp this to our, to, to our detriment. It's, it's, it's a beautiful image that we don't grasp. But water plays a significant role in the, the announcement of Jesus' ministry at the beginning and the end. And so, Jesus' ministry starts with his baptism. Now, all four gospel writers include an account of the baptism of Jesus. And that should tell you that it's significant and important. They all included. It's that important. And of course, there's the element of water, but we also see this idea that the presence of God is in this place. And so, of course, the uh, beginning of Jesus's ministry starts with his baptism. And what is John the Baptist's message? Repent because the kingdom is near. It's almost here. It's in this place. Secondly, we told that Jesus baptizes, uh, jo sorry, John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And again, no coincidence, no accident. To the Jews, the, the river Jordan, they thought of as being the same as the river in the Garden of Eden. For them, the, the, the Jordan River was a significant river. It had a spiritual connotation. And so, when we go back to the Old Testament and we see Lot and Abraham, we, we, Lot and Abraham, they're, 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 they're having some conflict, and so they decide to go their separate ways. And Abraham says to Lot, you look out of the land and you choose where you want to go. And we read this. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And then, of course, at the actual baptism of Jesus we see the presence of God or the indication of the presence of God. Matthew tells us, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so we see this idea of 
water, living water, indicating the presence of God being revealed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But we also see it at the end. But again, because it's cultural, we, we tend to miss it. But it's an astounding mental picture. It's an astounding, it's, it's such a graphic image of what's going on. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, we, we read of his crucifixion. And John describes the, the end of Jesus' death in this way. John says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, that's a very important statement, sudden flow of blood and water. In storytelling, there, there is this concept called Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun. And the principle says that when you are telling a story, you must not include any, uh, anything that's superfluous. You don't include anything that's not necessary. Everything that you include in a story must have a purpose. So that's Chekhov's, uh, the principle is called Chekhov's gun, and it comes from a statement by Chekhov himself where he describes riding a play, and he says this. He says, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one, it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. Okay, so there's this idea that if it's in the story, it must have a meaning. Now, this is also true of the gospel writers. They were, they were rushing to get the story out, and so they, 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 they summarized a lot of what they were writing, but they made sure that everything that was included was important. Okay, so remembering this, go back to that statement. John says, when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. Now, in the Greek, this is a lot clearer. In the Greek, it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead. And the Greek word for saw is not the normal Greek word blepo, which means to see. It's the Greek word horo, which means to understand, to comprehend. So, they come to Jesus, and they don't look at him and go, oh, he must be dead. They come to Jesus, and they look, and they comprehend. They understand. They grasp that he is dead. And then one, one of the soldiers stabs him. Why? Roman cruelty. No. So that we'd have this medical understanding of the separation of blood and plasma. No, John wasn't... Uh, he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't writing with a scientific mind. So what's going on? What's going on is that that word for flow of water is the exact same Greek word that Jesus uses when he's speaking to the woman at the well. And the imagery is this. Yeah, we have the Son of God, the, the, the one who was the very presence of God with mankind. And that 
Son of God, that presence of God is now dead. And the point John is making that we miss is this. That sudden flow of water is an indication that the presence of God has just departed. The sudden flow of water is a reminder to everyone reading that the presence of God has just left, departed. Secondly, the image of living water was a reminder that living water itself was a gift from God. Again, Jesus alludes to this when he's speaking to the woman at the well, and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Throughout the Bible, living water is always seen as a gift from God. And that's obvious, right? When you live in a dry, arid place that gets a total of 60 days rain in an entire year. When you don't get a lot of rain, and suddenly it rains, you're very aware that God has given you the gift of rain. You know it. You don't see it for months on end, and then it rains, and you are aware that this is a gift of God. We see this in Scripture as well. God speaking to his people through the prophet of Jeremiah. He says, uh, chastising the people of God, he says, my people, they do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains in season. Paul preaching in the New Testament tells us the same. He says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. Living water is always a gift from God. Have you ever tried to make it rain? Have you ever created your own river? Have you ever been able to, to make a river that puts out 7.6 million cubic square feet of water per, per minute? Have, have you ever tried? No. Why? It's impossible. Only God can do that. Water, living water is a gift from God. And Jesus, as the source of living water, is the ultimate gift from God. It's a gift. It's not deserved. We didn't earn it. It's a gift. Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The third image that uh, the ancient Israelites uh, connected with this idea of living water was with the, uh, the idea or the, the, the concept, of course, that salvation and eternal life comes only through God, the one who provides uh, living water. 
Jesus, after being uh, sort of a little subtle with the woman at the well, eventually says it very clearly. And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In the Old Testament, the idea of living water was very closely associated with cleansing rituals. Now, if you think about how they divided water into living water and dead water, it makes a lot of sense. If you have a dirty garment and you wash it in dead water, does it get clean? No, it gets worse. But living water was able to clean garments or clean people. And so it became associated with cleansing rituals. And so, for example, just one of the many Moses tells us in Leviticus 15.13, uh, we read that uh, when a man is cleansed from his discharge, and he's talking about a, a skin condition, a wound that's weeping or something, uh, he's to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh, literal translation, with living water, and he will be clean. And because living water had the power to make people clean on the outside from skin conditions, the idea of living water became uh, associated with the cleansing of the inside, the spirit, the, the person's being. And we see this again with Jesus himself. Uh, John tells us, John chapter 7, John uh, says, Jesus uh, says this, on the, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So Jesus drink, associates himself here with, with, with salvation, with living water. But what's important is not, what, not just what Jesus says, but when Jesus says it. That's the key to this passage. What's important here is when Jesus says what he says. We're told it's the last and most important day of the festival. So uh, this is the festival of Sukkot that we're talking about. Uh, and this day that uh, Jesus is talking about was the uh, important day. It was the day called uh, Hoshana Rabbah, which means great salvation. And on this day, there was a very special ceremony that took place uh, involving water. The ceremony was called uh, Simsha Beit Hashovah, uh, which literally translates as the joy of drawing water. And so what would happen on this day is that on this day, the, 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 all the priests would be divided into three groups, and two of the groups would go into the temple, uh, and they would worship in the temple, and, and the third group, led by the high priest, would uh, go down uh, to... The, uh, to the Pool of Siloam, and the high priest would have a, a golden pitcher. And uh, he would draw water out of, uh, put water into this golden pitcher. And the moment that water was in the golden pitcher, it, it was given a name. Anyone want to guess what the name is? Living water. 
And that water would be taken into the, into the altar in the Holy of Holies and poured out. Just this association of salvation and cleansing. But as the high priest would draw that water, as he moved back to the temple, he would begin to chant rhythmically, softly, this chant as he walked back to the temple. And, and the chant was a couple of verses from Isaiah. Now remember, Jesus' Hebrew name was Yehoshua. Okay, keep that in mind. And so here we have the high priest carrying living water. And as he's walking, he's chanting, and this is what he's chanting. He's saying, I will give thanks to you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my Yehoshua. I will trust him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my song. He has become my Yehoshua. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of Yehoshua. As the priest is performing this ritual associated with salvation, as he is carrying the, the golden pitcher with living water, he is literally, literally singing the name of Jesus. We're going to pause for a moment to just have a time of communion. And the elements that we're about to partake in are a reminder. They are ancient images. They are prophetic pictures that point to who Jesus is. And because he is the source of living water, we find salvation through him and him alone. And as we take a moment to just pause our spirits, just quieten our hearts as we take the elements, we are reminded of the tremendous gift that he has given us. The living water. God himself with us. And close with one final concept that the ancient Israelites associated with the concept of living water. And it's this living water reminded the ancients 
that because God was the only, the only source of living water, living water itself was a reminder that we as his people are dependent on him. Completely dependent on him and him alone. In the Old Testament, as God is preparing his people to, to leave Egypt and head to the promised land. He makes a distinction between how they have lived in Egypt and how they will live differently in, uh, in, in Canaan, in, in the promised land. And he makes this distinction using the idea of living water. And so this is what God says. God says, the land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot, as in a vegetable garden. In other words, you used dead water. You, you did it yourself. You irrigated, you, you made a plan to water your gardens. And God says, but the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks its rain from heaven. It is a land that your Lord God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year till its end. God is making the point that the difference between how they lived in Egypt and how they are to live in, in, in the promised land is one of dependence. In Egypt, they watered their own gardens by redirecting water or, or irrigating or using pumps to get water to their gardens. And God says, well, in Canaan, you're going to have to rely on the, on the living water, on, on the rain. You're not going to be able to rely on yourself. You're going to have to rely on me. And so Egypt and Canaan are a contrast between the security of human effort and dependence on God. Now, here's where we run into a problem as people. As, as humans, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And we are made in the image of God, which means we are so different from all the other animals or created uh, all of creation. And so, because God has made us the way we are, as people, we are very self-sufficient. We are very capable. We are very competent. We are very creative. We are very inventive. We are very efficient. We're very well organized. But that's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not that we are very self-sufficient. Our greatest problem is not that we are very capable. Our greatest problem is not that we are very competent. It's not that we are very creative. It's not that we are very inventive. It's not that we are very efficient. It's not that we are very well organized. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we are too self-sufficient. Our problem is that we are too capable. Our problem is that we are too competent. We are too creative. We are too inventive. Our problem is that we are too efficient. Our problem is that we are too well organized. And because of that, 
we are prone to not depend on living water. We are prone to make our own plan with dead water. And self-dependence is not just a bad idea, it's a sin. Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, this is what God says to his people. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. My people have not reached out and taken hold of the living water I give, and instead they've made their own plan. They've depended on dead water when living water was available. Living, just self-dependence and not reaching out to living water, it's not only a sin, it's, I can't even put this bluntly, it's just stupid, it's dumb. It's just, it's just a bad idea. It's dumb. It's like not paying your taxes or, or supporting the Calgary Flames. It's just completely dumb. But we do it. We do it. Why? Because we, we are afraid. To depend on living water. We're afraid. What if it doesn't rain? What if? What if I don't see or get living water? What if? What if I experience a drought? What if, what if I depend on God and the rain just doesn't come? What if? So what I'll do instead is I'll make a plan. I'll make a plan. I'll, I'll, I'll build a dam. I'll dig a cistern. I'll, 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 I'll make a well. I'll make a plan because what if? What if? There's a drought. What if? I'll make my own plan because that's just, that's risky. I'll make my own plan. Some of you this morning may be at a, a crossroads in your life. Maybe it's a, it's a decision. It's, it's something that requires deep thought and prayer. And you're facing this 
time of uncertainty. I want to leave you with this challenge this week. I want you, when you pray over that situation, family problem, life decision, whatever it is, I want you to take a moment to pray for it, but I want you to take an empty glass. And I want you to put it in front of you as you pray. And then, I want you to make a decision. And the decision is this. You can choose A or B. A. God, you fill. You fill this glass with living water. Or B. Don't bother God. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I'll put dead water in the glass. I want you to do that this week. I want you to pray over your situation, and then I want you to put that glass in front of you. And I want you to make a decision. Living water or dead water? Our Father, we, we stand in awe that the Creator, the Almighty, all-powerful God of the universe, would love us so deeply that you would give us your living water. We're, we're, we're astounded by that. And so, Father, this week, as we bring our, our, our lives before you, won't you help us to choose wisely? Won't you help us to choose living water and help us to not choose doing it ourselves. Filling our glasses with dead water at the expense of your living water. We thank you again for your, your, your great love and mercy for us. And we praise you. Amen.